WBEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation. Plus, MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. I'm Quinn Myers, and this time on Curious City, we're taking a look at one of Chicago's most influential exports, the juvenile justice system. Today, if you're under 18 and get arrested in Cook County, you'll usually go through a separate legal system designed for young people. But until the beginning of the 20th century, many children who ran into trouble with the law were tried and jailed alongside adults. That is, until the world's first juvenile court was established in 1899, right here in Chicago. It's the origins of that court that Andrea Krieg, a criminal justice professor at Elmhurst College, wants to know more about. So with every juvenile delinquency textbook, I would say, there is one sentence that says, the first juvenile court was created in Cook County, Illinois. And then it just keeps moving on. And for most people across the U.S., they probably don't think anything of it. But us being in Chicago and Chicago land, I started to wonder kind of, wait, I want more information. More information like where exactly was the first juvenile court? How did it function? Who was eligible? And why did it start here in Chicago? The answers to Andrea's questions are rooted in the progressive era, when a group of impassioned activists in Chicago, most of them women, developed the model for the first juvenile court. But as it spread and evolved over the 20th century, the court started to move away from how it was originally conceived. It ended up looking more and more like the adult criminal system it had hoped to replace. Today, those shifts have presented a wide range of challenges for the juvenile justice system. But they've also inspired new efforts to reevaluate how we detain and rehabilitate children and young adults. Efforts that, in some ways, harken back to what the reformers had in mind over a century ago. Let's start back in 1882. By one count, there were at least 20 kids under the age of 11 in the Cook County Jail. So there's concerns about putting young people in the same Uh, cells or institutions with adults leads to uh, violence, sexual abuse. The fear is that the criminal justice system, if you put kids into it, just is going to educate them to become, uh, you know, kind of vicious, hardened criminals. That's University of Nevada professor David Tannenhaus, the author of Juvenile Justice in the Making. One story Tannenhaus dug up involves a 10-year-old boy who stole a pair of shoes and then spent almost two weeks in the county jail before appearing before a grand jury. It was situations like this that attracted the attention of a group of women social reformers in the late 1880s. Many of them were among the first generation of American women to go to college, and they congregated at Jane Addams Hull House. 
They were especially concerned with the plight of children in a rapidly industrializing Chicago. Two reformers in particular spearheaded the movement for a separate court for children. Lucy Flower was a wealthy philanthropist who served on the Chicago School Board and helped create what became the Cook County School of Nursing. She knew how to work the institutions. Flower had the idea to create a so-called parental court. She had two goals, to keep kids out of the harsh conditions of adult prison and to prevent them from becoming lifelong criminals. The other leader in this movement was Flower's friend, Julia Lathrop. She was a Hull House social worker and knew how prisons operated. Lathrop toured every jail in Illinois, documenting the conditions there. Together, they started pushing for an official juvenile legal system. So it's a kind of combination of these women who, you know, are very politically astute. They work with leaders of all the different uh, religious organizations in the city. They work with men in the bar association. And then in 1899, the Illinois legislature passed a bill creating the world's first juvenile justice system. It was modeled after Flowers' parental court. And then Chicago uh, becomes a model through creating this remarkable legislation, the talent of the, the people involved. The first juvenile cases were heard at the county building in downtown Chicago. Eight years later, an official court was built across from Hull House on what is now UIC's campus. Professor Thomas Garrity teaches juvenile law at Northwestern. He says unlike the adult system, the procedures of the first juvenile court were designed to be purposefully informal. The judge might be sitting around a table as opposed to in a formal courtroom. The children and families would be sitting at a table, again, as opposed to standing in the dock as a criminal defendant would. And the objective of the judge was to try to act in the best interests of the child and not to impose harsh consequences upon the child. The reformers hoped this approach would allow judges and probation officers to provide individual solutions to each child's case. They did not have attorneys, and actually the idea was that probation officers would stand up and let the judge know what they thought was in the best interest of the child. The model of the Chicago court spread rapidly. By 1925, every state except Maine and Wyoming had some kind of juvenile court system. The early reformers hoped that the new approach would help kids stay out of the legal system. But instead, as the court grew, Tannenhaus says they noticed the same kids kept coming back. It was a revolving door. It doesn't solve the problem of you know, children growing up without the support uh, that they need from families and communities. It's, it's not going to solve those structural problems. And Garrity says there is another problem that arose as the system scaled up. A problem that, of course, developed was that um, children were being dealt with in a rather summary fashion. One important example involved a 15-year-old boy who made an obscene phone call. He was arrested, but no one told his parents. He was convicted and sentenced without a lawyer without representation of counsel, without due process. So we have in the 60s a series of Supreme Court decisions, which we call the due process you know, revolution. Those decisions began to formalize a process the early progressive reformers had wanted to keep flexible and intimate. And from then on, children were entitled to counsel. They were entitled to confront witnesses. They could not be deprived of their liberty without proof beyond a reasonable doubt. As the due process revolution expanded legal protections for juveniles, the court began to look and operate a lot more like the adult system. 
And starting in the late 1970s, Garrity says, the ideals of the early reformers lost even more ground after a series of high-profile cases made many fear that kids were getting off too easy. States started transferring more juveniles directly to adult courts and prisons. These transfers reflected what Tannenhaus calls a moral panic in the national discourse on crime in the 1980s and 90s. In Cook County's Juvenile Detention Center, this was matched by rampant overcrowding and abusive conditions. In the late 90s and early 2000s, activists and institutions started reassessing that tough-on-crime approach, kicking off yet another era of reform for the juvenile court. Betsy Clark has been at the forefront of those modern-day reforms. She's the founder of the Juvenile Justice Initiative, a nonprofit based in Evanston. Clark says there's been progress made over the past 20 years, like a steep reduction in the number of incarcerated kids. But she says the court still faces a number of obstacles. For one, children of color and from low-income families are overrepresented in the system. We do things in this country that no other developed country does. We prosecute children as adults. We give them lengthy sentences in the adult court. We uh, lock up children, even though we've reduced a lot, we lock them up at still much higher rates than other developed nations. So it's a funny dichotomy. We were the leader over a century ago, and now we're, uh, we just need to change some of these policies to catch up. Today, 120 years after the first juvenile court was established, Clark's concerns echo those of the early reformers. She'd like to move away from trying any juvenile in adult courts. She also wants to provide more education and professional resources for at-risk communities. But she'd also like to change the definition of juvenile itself to include people in their early 20s. She says research shows the brain's decision-making abilities aren't fully formed until a person reaches their mid-20s. That research is driving an experimental program launched by Cook County in August 2017 called the Restorative Justice Community Court. And it has some ideas similar to what those early reformers had in mind. The court is open to nonviolent offenders between the ages of 18 and 26, just over the age of eligibility for the juvenile system from Chicago's North Lawndale neighborhood. All in all, just a small number of people. It brings together an offender, victim, and members of the community. They sit together in a peace circle, where they discuss the motivations behind the crime, the harm caused by it, and potential solutions. The focus is on repairing harm from crime as opposed to being strictly punitive. And in restorative justice, the best way in which to do that is to have the people who are most directly affected by that crime be at the table or be at the circle, so to speak. That's Judge Colleen Sheehan, who oversees the court. The goal is to create what are called repair of harm agreements. They might include something like community service or connecting an offender with job training or a mentor in the field they're interested in. At every restorative court meeting, Judge Sheehan sits in the peace circle, as opposed to at a traditional judge's bench, to make sure things run smoothly. Like the reformers behind the first juvenile court, Sheehan hopes the peace circles find specific solutions for every case. The through line is both of these courts being innovative and innovative not just to do something new, but innovative in order to address a particular issues or problems that I think that society uh, was facing. As for our question asker, Andrea, she says she isn't surprised to learn that what the juvenile court was intended to be isn't quite what we have now. Which I think is kind of 
the criminal justice system at its foundation, right? That we always have different intentions, and then there's collateral consequences. Support for Curious City comes from the Conant Family Foundation. You can listen to our podcast at wbez.org slash Curious City or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Quinn Myers. Next time on Curious City, the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago introduced hundreds of products to millions of people. It also saw some of the first large-scale experiments in modern marketing, like one of the world's first promotional giveaways. They'd look at each other and say, hey, let's go see what we won. And they'd troop up the steps by the hundreds, by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands. Mass marketing at the World's Columbian Exposition. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.